What motivates you to succeed? We all have things that motivate us, that drive us, especially in the important areas of our lives. And and really, those motivations are so natural to us, we probably don't even think about them day to day. But if I set you down and asked you, okay, why is it that you want to be a good spouse or a good parent? What motivates you to be a good student or a good friend? If you really sat down and thought about it, the answer to that question would probably say a lot about you, a lot about what you believe, and a lot about what makes you tick. What is it that motivates us? What, what motivates us at work to be faithful and hardworking employees? That's actually a question that has spurred a lot of research. People are desperate to know what makes faithful, hardworking, loyal employees. You could probably guess what the major factors are. I did the research myself. The three chief things that make you work hard and stay loyal at your job are money, recognition, and a challenge. That is to say, if you pay me well, if you recognize my hard work, and if you keep a good goal out in front of me, then I'll work hard and I'll be loyal to you. And for most people, that's true. Maybe not for all of us in this room, but generally, that's true. Those are the things that motivate us. Well, the question for today is an all-important one. More important, really, than the the questions I just asked. What motivates your moral behavior? What motivates your goodness, your your integrity, your honesty, your self-control, your compassion, things like that? Or to put it more specifically in Christian terms, what is it that motivates, that drives your godliness, your holiness, your righteousness? Almost everyone desires to be good and do good. I I don't know that I've ever met a person who was ambivalent toward the pursuit of goodness. Everybody wants to at least be thought of as a good person. And yet so often, if we're honest, we fall short of being and doing good. We all have that desire. We wake up with that desire. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I think I'll play the devil today. No, we want to be good, but so often we don't fulfill that desire. We don't measure up. And it's not an external problem. It's not other people's problem. It's an internal problem. When we do fall short, it's, it's, it's me, right? It's, it's you. And that's what the Bible wants to show us today. That's what the Apostle Peter wants to show us today. Not so much um, how to be good or what to do, but why we do it. Peter wants to to dig down to the motivation of the heart because what drives us is what really makes all the difference. And as Christians, Peter's going to show us that we have a unique motivation. Our motivation is not be good for goodness sake, but it's something more more, uh, eternal and divine than that. Our motivation comes from God. So what Peter's going to tell us in the scripture that Andrew just read for us, 1 Peter chapter 1, This has the power to change not just what you do, but why you do it. And why you do it is ultimately more important because it's going to control the other, okay? So Peter's going to show us two primary motivators for godliness or for right behavior. And the two motivators he gives us are hope and fear. And I realize those seem contradictory, especially the second one, maybe is unsettling to think about, but we're going to see the the beauty of those motivators here. There's a hope in God and there's a fear of God that motivates us to godly living, okay? And that begins in verse 13. 
Peter begins verse 13 by saying, therefore, he's talking, he's using context here. Everything that's preceded these, the last 12 verses, verses 1 through 12, all about God's wonderful grace, his precious gifts, the hope that we have, the joy that we have in Christ. Therefore, in light of that truth, he says, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts or passions which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, God says, you shall be holy, for I am holy." So before Peter tells us how to act, very important, he tells us how to hope. He tells us how to hope. Before he tells us what to do, he makes sure that we understand what drives the things that we do. And verse 13 is one of those anchor verses that we ought to anchor our lives to. What Peter tells us in verse 13 is absolutely fundamental to to our understanding of the Christian life. He says, fix your hope completely, fully, entirely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When when Peter says to fix your hope, that's the idea. To fix something means that something is in its proper place and it cannot be moved. And in this case, Peter's talking about something that is ultimate, something that's in the primary place. Um, now, if, if my, if my ast- astronomy is wrong here, y'all come correct me after the service, but my understanding of the universe, of our particular uh, you know, corner of the universe, is that the sun is our fixed point, and everything else revolves around it. We didn't always believe that, right? but now we understand it. That's what Peter means here. A fixed point that all of life now revolves around. Everything else finds its periphery around the fixed point, the focal point. And he says that fixed point is your hope, and that hope is on the grace of Jesus Christ. Now think about that. Everything in life, everything in life orbits, revolves around your hope in Jesus. And to to fix your hope completely carries the idea that it's something we put all of our weight on. If If you roll all of your weight onto something... You have to do it with a fair amount of confidence. When you get in bed at night, when you sit down in the chair that you're sitting in, you have to have a fair amount of confidence that it's going to sustain your weight, right? If you didn't, you wouldn't sit on it. And to fix your hope completely means that there's not just a fixed point of reference for life, but you put all of life, you stake everything on this. You anchor yourself to this one thing as of chief importance. And Peter says that thing is really not a thing, it's a person. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. Christ. So when Peter is about, he's about to tell us how to live, but he doesn't want to get us out of order here. He wants to make sure the order is correct. Grace, that is the gift of salvation that Jesus Christ has given us, grace comes before obedience. Not in religion it doesn't. Obedience comes first. But in the gospel message, grace comes first. Grace precedes godliness. Grace, and it doesn't just come first in order, but grace actually drives righteousness. It drives our behavior. It comes first, but it also is the thing that promotes a life that honors God. Why is that so important for us to get? 
I, I'm convinced that the default setting of the human heart says, if I will obey God, then God will love me. If I will do enough good religious things, then God will accept me. If I'll prove myself to him, if I'll tip the scales more in my good favor than my bad, then God will reward me. Then God will let me in. But the message of Jesus turns that idea totally on its head. Here's the hope that we have in Jesus, and this is why the Bible calls it hope. Not, I hope God will love me in the end. That's not biblical Christian hope. Our hope says, God already loves you. And he already accepts you without regard for your moral behavior, whether good or bad. Because God loves and accepts us on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. God does not love and accept you based on your moral record and performance. He loves you, he accepts you on the basis of Christ's performance, which has been given for us. And y'all, that literally makes a world of difference. All the difference in the world for us to understand that our hope is not rooted in our ability to be good and decent people or to be thought well of by our friends, neighbors, and family. Our hope is rooted in someone outside of us, a perfect man, a divine man. I wouldn't stake my moral record on anything to begin with because I know my own history and I know my own past. Y'all maybe know me well enough to know that I couldn't measure up to God. And so my hope has to be in someone beyond me. And Jesus Christ was the perfect one, the sinless one, the divine man. And he has given you his grace. And that's the hope that you fix your life on. Hear me when I say this. The righteousness that God requires of you, he has already accounted to you as a free gift from Jesus. This is what obliterates religion. The righteousness that God requires of you, he has already accounted to you as a free gift from Jesus. You see what a difference that would make if I really internalize that truth? It changes everything. And this is the essence of the gospel. This is, this is the good news that our hope drives our behavior. We don't get things out of order. Um, otherwise, it's possible that I'll end up trying to obey God as if I'm climbing a never-ending ladder. And if you know this feeling, you know the despair that comes with it, that I've got to wake up tomorrow and excel even more. I've got to do even more. I've got to climb even higher. And I never really know if God's going to accept what I've done or not. I just hope for the best. I cross my fingers. That's no way to live. That's not the way the Bible calls us to live. Because hope doesn't take the form of a ladder up to God. Hope takes the form of a cross. Hope takes the form of an empty tomb. Jesus has done everything for you. That's our hope. That's why we can fix our hope and all of life can orbit around it because that hope is beyond us. That hope is perfect. That hope is divine and eternal. Right? Have I beaten that horse enough? All right. Um, see, there was a time, and, and Peter takes our hope now, and then he issues a command. Do you notice this? He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed any longer to the former passions which were yours in your ignorance, right? Uh, don't live any longer 
desiring and acting on the things that you used to do before you were saved. That's basically what he means here. Because we are obedient children, right? That's our new identity. There was a time when we were ignorant of God's grace. There was a time, the Bible says, when we were far away from God because of our sin. But now we're no longer ignorant. We've been enlightened to the good news of Jesus. And we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And because we have a new hope, Peter's trying to show us that in place of our old passions are new passions. Don't be conformed to your old passions. Why would you? Because something new has come into your life. The idea that God would save me only abstractly, nothing else has changed, everything else remains the same, but now I'm going to heaven. That's a, that's a, um, that would be a very cheap gospel. That wouldn't be very helpful to us, would it? I mean, it's good to go to heaven, but the Bible promises change now. The Bible promises a new heart. So our hope, when our hope is fixed on Christ, Peter's saying, listen, you are now obedient children. You have new passions. No longer a slave to your old desires, but you now want to be obedient. You want to live a life of holiness. Um, I don't know about you, in my old life, which wasn't you know, all that long ago, my, in my old life, my motivation for goodness was pretty two-dimensional. Um, here's, here's how it went. If there was something bad that was available to me, typically I would go through a little filter. You know, it took me about two seconds to go through my filter here. Um, my brain wasn't fully developed at this point. It's, you know, um, 18 years old. What are other people going to think of me if I do this? And that was my filter. Uh, what trouble might I get into if I do this? What future opportunities might get taken away from me if I do this? I don't know if, has that ever been your, your motivation? That was your filter, right? That is not good enough motivation to keep you from sin. Really, it's just it's me, it's me focusing on me. I'm not thinking about God. I'm not thinking about what, what my sin might do to other people. I'm just thinking about how much trouble could I get into? How much would people potentially look down on me if I got caught doing this thing, right? That's not Christian motivation. In Christ, we have new passions. We're called obedient children, which means, listen, now I speak ideally here. If you're a parent like me, you know the ideal is not always the case. But what does it mean to be an obedient child? It means that you obey your parents not out of obligation, but out of love. Ideally, that's the case, right? That you obey out of love, out of honor, out of a desire to please your parents. And so when Peter says, we are, not we ought to be, but we are obedient children, he's saying that we're not doing good things simply out of self-preservation, simply out of fear of getting caught or of what other people might think of me if they found out. No, we want to obey God in light of all that God has done for us. There's a new affection and a desire that stirs up in our hearts because we recognize where our hope is and we fixed our hope on the grace of Jesus. So it's possible that you can obey God simply because it pleases God. Not to try to earn anything from Him, not a ladder to climb, not out of fear of losing something as if God's going to push the button on you if you mess up. You can obey Him simply out of an act of love and gratitude to please Him because your heart delights in his grace. When Peter calls us to holiness, he's not calling you to a rigid, cold, joyless life. Get, put your head down and obey. That is not the biblical message. 
He's calling you to a vibrant life of hope and light and grace and joy because you're an obedient child of God. You get to do this. I get to live in a manner that pleases my heavenly Father. That's not a burden to us. Uh, 1 John says we love God by obeying His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. I used to wonder about that verse. My goodness, they, are, they seem so burdensome to me. Right? But that's why John says it's the love of God to obey his commandments. If you love him, it's not a burden at all, any more than it's a burden to love my wife. I would never look at it that way. Of course not. Because I love her. I'll do anything for her. I love her, right? I, there's no cost to me in that. It's a privilege. We love God, and therefore we obey him. Do you see how that kind of hope, that kind of grace would change our motivation? That it would drive us to a different way of life. Not goodness for goodness sake, but goodness for Christ's sake in light of his goodness toward us. Why you do what you do is going to drive what you do. That's what Peter tells us. And the why is all important. But Peter doesn't stop here. I, wish, I kind of wish he would, to be honest. The hope portion I love. But then he, tar- he, tar- he gives us a, a, another motivator here. And it's, it's frankly confusing and might seem a little unsettling, at least on the surface. Look at verse 17. Peter makes a second appeal. He says, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. <clears throat> uh, let's go ahead and deal with the obvious question here. What kind of motivator is fear in the Christian life? Isn't there a verse somewhere that says perfect love casts out all fear? Doesn't the thought of fearing God kind of hearken us back to this, this idea of, oh, God is, a, is, a, is an angry tyrant, and we've just got to obey him for fear of something bad happening to us? I mean, it, it, when we use that word, maybe that's the idea that comes to mind. Maybe that's the question you ask, just like me. And those are great questions. I love when y'all ask questions that correspond to my notes, by the way. Um, notice how Peter, in this section, talks about God Right, We've got that word fear hanging out there, okay, sure. But listen, he says God is our Father. If you address as Father, that means you are a Christian. God is your Father. We are his obedient children. He's just told us that, right? And then at the end of this little section, he tells us, verse 19, that we have been redeemed with precious blood. That is the blood of Christ. You take those two facts. Those are bare facts. Those are not uh, maybes. Or ought to be. Those are true things that have really happened to us. If those things are true, Peter cannot be telling us that we need to be afraid that God might send us to hell. Those are Im- that's an impossibility if God is your Father and if you've re- been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. He's not talking about you need to, I'm trying to shake you out of your hope and make you doubt your salvation. That's not Peter's point at all here. He's not contradicting what he's already told us. Um, some of us might be tempted. We, we, we might be tempted to walk around every day just convinced that God is furious with us and the floor is going to open up beneath me at any moment and just take me away. Right? Paranoid, uh, fearful, that kind of fear. That's not Peter's point at all here. What Peter is saying 
is that we should take very, very seriously who God is and what God has done. That's what's synonymous with fear here is not I'm afraid God's going to hurt me, but I take very, very seriously who he is and what he's done. Go back to verse 17 and see what he's, he's saying here. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, that, that's a statement right there of God's justice and his righteousness, okay? I, I love the fact that Peter mentions God's impartiality. God is the only impartial judge in existence, Human judges, no matter how noble they are, they can't help but be partial. It's human nature, right? But God is impartial, meaning he doesn't treat any single person differently on the basis of their wealth or their ethnicity or their social status or anything else. God treats us all the same, and that should be good news for us, right? But God is also righteous, and Peter wants us to understand that God in his righteousness does not tolerate sin. He can't sweep sin under the rug as if it never happened. It has to be dealt with, and therefore God impartially judges every person according to how they've chosen to live their life. And we want that to be true. Even if it's a scary thought, I want evil people to be punished. And so do you, right? The problem is that there's evil in my own heart <laughs> that God is going to, to deal impartially with, right? And so if, if, if I were to come before God simply on my own merits, on my own goodness versus my own badness, verse 17 is, is, is very clear that I, I, don't, I don't stand a chance. I'm not going to pass the test on that day. And that should cause me to tremble when I recognize that God really is righteous and just and I really am a sinner, okay? That's, that little part of the news is not good news for me and you, right? But look what he's done for us. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. This is not a problem you can buy your way out of. You were not redeemed from your uh, feudal way of life that you inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed, he says, with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. When we recognize the true cost of our salvation, it should always steal our breath a little bit. When I, when I really consider what it cost God to forgive my sins, see, we receive the forgiveness of sins, what, as a free gift. It costs us nothing. In fact, doing work would actually get in the way of it. We just need to receive it. It's a gift. But it wasn't free for God to provide. It cost God the most precious life there ever was. It cost him the blood of his own son. And so Peter's point here is this. If we know who God is in his justice and righteousness, we address him as father. We know him. We know how righteous he is. And if we know how, what he's done for us in his mercy, if we recognize what, what it cost him to save us, then we should tremble at the thought of going back into our old manner of life as if nothing's really happened to us. That's what, that's what this verse means. It should, it should make me, uh, it should give me a sense of healthy fear to think about taking for granted who my father is and what he's done for me, right? I'm not afraid of going to hell. That's been, that's been taken care of. You will, if you have faith in Christ, you will go to heaven. You cannot lose your salvation. Okay? If, that, if you struggle with that thought, buy me coffee sometime and we'll talk about it. Uh, I would absolutely love to, talk, to help you be encouraged 
and comfort it in that because that is, that is not a fear that the Bible desires for you to feel. It's a healthy fear that says, I don't want to take for granted who God is and what he's given me. It's too precious to me. The life that we lived before Jesus it was ignorant and futile. Peter says futility. That means that it was ultimately meaningless apart from God. But now we've been given a life full of hope and grace and everlasting joy. So what is our motivation to obey God, to be good, and to live a righteous life? It's not to earn something from God. It's not to climb a ladder up to the top, right? Because everything that we've been given is a gift, it's a gift. Our motivation is also not fear of losing something, as if God's going to change his mind about you and take your salvation back. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about. Our motivation is the precious relationship that we have been given. We are children of our Heavenly Father. We are redeemed by Christ. We are fixed with hope on his grace. And we have a very healthy fear in that sense that we don't want to take for granted the giver or the gift. Does that make sense? Uh, many of y'all are probably familiar with the name Martin Luther. Martin Luther uh, was, has been ranked in a secular um, uh, poll, was ranked the third most influential man of the last thousand years. Um, he was a German Catholic monk. He's called the father of the Protestant Reformation. We are sitting here today in part because of the courage of Martin Luther, okay, who fought back against the, the Catholic idea of earning your salvation and maintaining it day by day. But see, Martin Luther didn't always believe what he believed that sparked the Reformation. In fact, Luther, at one point, as a Catholic monk, was absolutely convinced that God was furious with him all the time, and Luther constantly prayed for forgiveness. He confessed every minute sin he could possibly imagine that he might have committed, and he, he could not understand God as loving him. It just wasn't in his, uh, his mind or his heart to see God that way. In fact, one of the famous stories about Luther is uh, he came to what are called the Holy Steps, 28 marble steps uh, outside of Rome, and he climbed the holy steps. He would do this often. He climbed the holy steps on his knees, bruising and bloodying his knees. And at every step he would stop, and weeping he would pray the Lord's Prayer, hoping that showing enough sorrow for his sin by climbing the steps on his knees, God might forgive him. God might forgive him. That's fear now. That's an unhealthy fear. One day, Martin Luther was asked, because he was brilliant, he was asked to teach through Romans. And when he began to teach through Romans, he came to Romans 1.16. And, and I, I'm sure he had read it before, but he'd never quite read it and seen it before. Romans 1.16, which says, The righteous man shall live by faith. And all of a sudden, the blinders came off of Martin Luther's eyes. And he recognized that to be righteous is to have faith in Christ. It had nothing to do with his goodness or badness. It had nothing to do with how sorry he could be and how many times he could climb the stairs on his knees. If he would have faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then he would be righteous and then he would be saved. Martin Luther was converted by reading Romans 1.16 and he became the father of Protestantism, which is what we are. Otherwise, we'd have never heard of him. He came to understand faith and no longer did he fear God in the same way 
but he loved God and he pursued him by faith. Okay? Um, that's the kind of motivation, the heart motivation that God's got to do in us to show us the difference. Otherwise, we might obey him simply out of a wrong motivation that doesn't lead us to Christ. Right? We all need what Martin Luther discovered, and by God's grace, we receive it too. Now, there's, let's, let's wrap this up. There's a third motivation that I did not address at the first. We talked about hope, we talked about fear, but I didn't mention this before because it's not our motivation, it's God's motivation that Peter talks about next. And if you look at verse 20, Peter's going to close this little section by telling us about what motivates God. God is the first mover. God's the initiator when it comes to our salvation. And Peter's going to show us that in verse 20. He says, For he, Jesus, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has, been, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope <clears throat> are in God. When Peter says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, that doesn't mean that Jesus simply existed before the world began, although that's true. What Peter's trying to tell us here is that God, before God ever created the universe, he had already planned to send his son for the salvation of sinners, for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus was not God's plan B after Adam and Eve messed everything up. God had to clean up the mess, and so he thought he'll send Jesus. No, God had it in his heart always. Before anything else was created, God knew that he would send his son to die for the sins of the world. And so this grace that we now enjoy, that you and I enjoy right where we sit, this was in God's heart from the very beginning. And when Jesus did finally make his appearance on the earth in time and space, Peter says he did it for the sake of you. He did it for you. Isn't that an encouraging thought? That God would love you before there was a you to love. That God would plan to save you at great cost to himself before there was even a you to save. That God would look in your direction before you ever looked in his direction and he would love you this much. He's motivated in your direction. That ought to encourage us today. He's the first mover before there's anything required of us. Uh, so let me close with two encouragements here. Uh, these, are kind, these are kind of soft applications. I'm not going to tell you exactly what to do because only you know your own passions, your own issues, and, and we all ought to pray individually that God would show us what holiness looks like. Um, but one of these encouragements is passive and one is active, okay? The passive one first, that when it comes to your own pursuit of holiness, I said this a minute ago, you have to rest in the fact that you have nothing to earn from God. And this has to come first before you do anything. You and I, we've got to rest in the fact that there is no ladder to climb. You may have heard that before, but it's so easy for us to fall into. It's a hard habit for us to break. It's hard to rest in the fact that there is absolutely nothing I can do today to make God love me more or even make, make him love me less. That I can rest in that reality. Um, if, if, we, if we don't rest in what Christ has done for us, we will always drift into moralism and legalism. This idea that what I do makes me who I am. That what I do for God is what makes me acceptable in God's eyes. And our sense of identity, our sense of worth will depend entirely 
on our own performance and on what we see when we look in the mirror. Um, and when that happens, we, we miss grace. We miss grace. And so in Christ, listen, you have nothing to earn. You have no ladder to climb. And that's why Peter says we can fix our hope, our proud confidence, we can fix it entirely, completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Rest in that. Rest in that. But then also let me encourage us to action, okay? Because we can't simply rest and do nothing when it comes to the pursuit of godliness. Of course, we have to act. And because we fix our hope on Jesus, the action, listen, the action should follow suit, right? Wherever, this is, this is biologically true, wherever you have your eyes fixed is where your feet will follow, right? If you don't do that, you're going to trip and fall, right? Wherever you have your eyes fixed, that's where your feet will go. And so when, when Peter says, be holy, that is a command. That's an active command. But I hope we've seen today that it's not a cold, dead, legalistic, joyless command. Be holy is, I get to love and pursue and honor God with this one and only life that he's given me. I get a fresh opportunity today, regardless of what's happened in the past, even yesterday, regardless. I forget what lies behind and I reach on forward to what lies ahead, to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That was Paul's own testimony. Leave the past behind and reach forward now to what God has set before us, to set our affections on him. Uh, I love what Tim Keller has said about this, that uh, if you want to change your behavior, change what you love. If you want to change how you live, change what you love. If in your heart you set your affections, your hope, you fix it on Jesus Christ, you will obey him. I promise you. You will. And so be holy is a command that we don't produce with gritted teeth out of our own strength. I've got to be good. I've got to be good. I can't do this. I can't do that. No, we pursue Jesus Christ in light of what he's done for us. It's a natural response to his grace. I quoted a few weeks ago from Hebrews 12 about what Jesus did on the cross but con connected to that verse in Hebrews 12 is the verse that precedes it. And I'm going to quote that for us now. This is Hebrews 12.1. It says, by command, Hebrews says, Lay aside every encumbrance, every distraction, every barrier, every hurdle, and lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us, like getting wrapped up in weeds and vines, tangled up. He says, lay that stuff aside and run with endurance the race that has been set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Run the race, that's an active command, but fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't look down at your own feet to see how you're doing. Fix your eyes on the goal, the prize, Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. Because he's the author, that means he's the beginner and he's the perfecter. He's the finisher of faith. I don't have to do anything to be accepted. I've already been accepted. Now I just get to run to him. Do you see how motivation changes things? Do you see about what we do has to be driven by a deeper why? Just like God's love for us is what drove him to the cross. The what is great, but the why is even greater because it showed us that God's heart is to forgive us and make us his children. The cross was just the means. 
And so Peter says we fix our hope completely on Jesus. Hebrews says we fix our eyes completely on Jesus. If he is our fixed point, if we roll all of our weight and trust onto him, then holiness becomes for us not something easy, don't misunderstand me, but it does become something joyful because we get to wake up fresh every day with an opportunity to love and pursue the one who loved and pursued you. Let's pray about that. Father, give us right this moment a deep sense of rest, would you please? Whenever we talk, whenever I think about obedience, I'm always tempted to think about how sorry I am and about how far short I've fallen and about how much I need to do to compensate. And Father God, those things are true, but they're not the gospel. The gospel says, Lord, that it's Jesus Christ and his obedience for us that makes us your children. And our obedience is now a response. Thank you, Father, that when you saw us deep in sin, you did not throw us down a ladder. But you sent us a Savior. And now, Father, we can live a life that pleases you. Now we can have in our hearts new passions, new passions, new affections, new drives, new desires, new motivations to love you and and live for you as we should. Father, would you destroy in our hearts right now, if there's any understanding of obedience that we have that is cold, that that is burdensome, destroy it in our hearts right now and show us who you really are and what you've really done for us. Fix our hope not on what we have done or what we could do, but fix our hope on the grace of Jesus. And Father, where we do fall short, and we do, Lord, spur us on according to this hope. Um, Don't allow us to languish in those old passions that drive us further from you, that, that do damage in our lives and in our relationships. But, but, Father, spur us on to love and good works, um, knowing that there's nothing to earn, but simply we get to obey you as your children. Father, motivate us properly. And I pray that even among this, this relatively small band of people, that as we, um, as we go back out into our communities, into our workplaces, into our homes, that, that a new motivation will spark a life that can't be explained. Nobody should be able to explain us as to why we would joyfully seek the good of others, as to why we would joyfully um, proclaim the grace of Jesus, why we would treat obedience not as a burden, but as an act of love. Father, make it so in our hearts. This is not natural to us. It's got to be done supernaturally. So produce it, Father, by faith. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.